Good afternoon, good evening. This is Dove Tuzman and you're on equal footing. We're going to talk tonight about war. If you are even, even if you've been, uh, hardly paying attention to what's going on around you, you know that the largest land war in Europe, the first significant, uh, invasion of previous sovereign Territory in continental Europe since World War II. Obviously, we had the Balkans War and so forth, but there was a significant argument that that was a civil conflict within an existing national, either a state or an amalgam of states. And now with Russian, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, the headlines everywhere are that this is the most significant uh, war, at least in the European continent since, since World War II. I was talking to someone earlier today about the importance of this morning's, I think it was like 4.30 in the morning or something, that the invasion really began, and how it stacks up against the events of the last couple of years. And I wouldn't be surprised if we look back many years from now and this sits on a relatively equal footing, no pun intended, to the pandemic in terms of its long-term effect on the security of our world. And so what better time to look at this question of war from a halachic perspective, from an ethical perspective, particularly through the Jewish prism. But if you're not Jewish or you're, you know, secular and you're in your upbringing as a Jew, stay tuned because a lot of the ethical questions here in halacha or Jewish law as it pertains to war, uh, really underpin uh, our the overall not only Judeo-Christian approach to what justifies a war and what is the justifiable conduct in war, but also many of the the Western philosophical traditions and questions along those lines, from Plato to Machiavelli uh, to the Tocqueville to the the present, and we've got a couple of really world-renowned subject matter experts on this topic, this intersection of Jewish ethics, Jewish law, and war. I want to introduce Professor Reuven Kimmelman first. Professor Kimmelman is also a practicing rabbi at Beth Abraham, which is a Sephardic congregation in Brookline, Massachusetts, close to my place of birth. You know, when I was sending out the social media blast for the show tonight, I got a couple of responses. I said, eh, Professor Kimmelman, uh, folks that have studied with him or members of his congregation up in Massachusetts. So a, a popular figure. Professor Kimmelman serves as professor of classical Judaica at Brandeis University uh, in the Boston area. He's also scholar in residence at the JCC in Palisades, New Jersey. And Professor Kimmelman teaches courses and directs doctoral work in Talmud, in Midrash, Jewish liturgy, Jewish ethics, and the Jewish political tradition. He co-directs the program of Judaism and Christianity in late antiquity at Brandeis. His most recent courses include the Western Canon, uh, Sefer Deuteronomy, and Understanding Evil and Human Destiny. 
Professor Kimmelman received his doctorate from Yale University, and he's the author of a book that I ordered today on Amazon. Check it out. It's about my favorite, um, you know, standard part of, of, uh, of Jewish prayer week to week. That's Kabbalat Shabbat, the service that we have on Friday evening. And Professor Kimmelman's book, it's available on Amazon, is called The Mystical Meaning of Lechadodi, a beautiful song that we sing on Friday evenings, and Kabbalat Shabbat. Again, The Mystical Meaning of Lechadodi and Kabbalat Shabbat. Uh, it's published by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He also has a forthcoming book called The Rhetoric of Jewish Prayer, a historical and literary commentary of the prayer book, and lots of audio courses. And of course, apropos to tonight's program on the halacha of war, Jewish ethics of war, he specializes in this topic, the Jewish ethics of war, and also the meaning of the Sidur. Professor Kimmelman, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining. And we've pr- we're probably on mute, but I'm sure you'll, you'll get, get sorted. I'm going to introduce our other guest, esteemed uh, mm-hmm. professor. <laughs> Hi, Professor Kimmelman. Welcome. Professor Robert Eisen is also joining us this evening. Professor Eisen is the professor of religion and Judaic studies at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. The focus of his most recent research is approaches to peace and violence in Judaism and also in Christianity and Islam, the Judeo-Christian faiths. His other areas of interest include comparative religion, Jewish philosophy, Jewish biblical interpretation. Professor Eisen is the author of six books that reflect his varied interest um, from, let's say, I'm not going to mention all of them, but uh, the Book of Job in Medieval Jewish Philosophy. It's an Oxford University uh, press publication, The Peace and Violence of Judaism. From the Bible to Modern Zionism, also at Oxford University Press, uh, Religious Zionism, Jewish Law and the Morality of War, Judaism and Violence, a Historical Analysis with Insights from Social Psychology, that's published by Cambridge University Press. He's also co-edited Philosophers in the Jewish Bible with Charles Mannequin. So just he's current, currently actually Professor Eisen is working on an additional book entitled Jews, Judaism and Success. And I know we're going to do a show on this uh, in the future, probably over the summer. Really interesting. It's kind of the religious roots of modern Jewish achievement. How has such a, a people that represents such a small portion of the population achieved so much in science and arts and literature? Interesting topic for the future. Professor Eisen has received a number of grants and awards to support his research. He's also uh, had a Fulbright research grant at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's won the Bender Teaching Award at George Washington University. Uh, he's an active consultant on all sorts of issues as it relates to religion and international armed conflict with an interest in fostering better relations between Jews, Christians, and Muslims throughout the world. And I couldn't finish off this intro, Professor Eisen, without mentioning that you're also a musician, singer, songwriter. Uh, you write and perform music in a variety of styles, including folk rock, pop, and, and country. So check out Professor Robert Eisen, or Rob Eisen, on Spotify or on, or on YouTube. Professor Eisen, thanks for joining. Thank you. Pleasure to, pleasure to be part of the show. Professor Eisen and Professor Kimmelman, this is a tough topic, and I want to give you license to, I know it's, it's when you talk about halacha, Jewish law, you always risk uh, some folks being put off because there are always going to be different interpretations, but I think it's important, we always have the view on this show that's important to talk about that which is difficult to talk about, that which we might not know whether we should ask our rabbi, that which we might not know whether we should ask our Jewish friend about because it may seem fraught with tension or or, uh, or fraught with, at least with divergent or just disparate interpretations. I give you license to, uh, to go off the reservation a little bit and get your, obviously, alacha, but also maybe your personal view, the views of other Jewish philosophers. And let's start by defining what war is. 
from a Jewish ethical perspective. And Professor Kimmelman, what are the boundaries? What, what is what is what constitutes war in Jewish law? Well, first, I want to compliment you uh, by introducing your audience to the significance of Jewish ethics for general political concerns. Uh, Judaism does not concern just Jews alone, and the wisdom of its halachic tradition can be applied to ethical issues throughout the world. For example, a, a case of war. Normally, war is discussed in terms of just war and unjust war in the uh, classical tradition and the Christian tradition. In Judaism, the two categories they use are mandatory war, mechemet mitzvah or chovah, and mechemet reshut, which is a discretionary war. By discretionary war, they mean reshut beit din, mm. the discretion of the Sanhedrin, which represents the people. So there are two major issues involved in Jewish war. That is the executive and the political body that represents the people. It would be like the Knesset, America Law, the Senate, and in Jewish Law, the Sanhedrin. And for listeners, we spoke about this on the last week's program, coincidentally, the Sanhedrin, which was this high court of the Jewish people that exists for, existed for at least 1200 years and unfortunately was extinguished by the Byzantine Empire in the early 5th century of the Common Era. And was the kind of representative body, basically like a representative legislature of the Jewish people. And you're talking about something that was introduced perhaps 800 plus years prior to any, anything resembling a democratic system in, you know, in Athens and ancient Greece. So really an interest, interesting institution, the ancient Sanhedrin, which you've talked about before. But Professor Kimmelman, if the Sanhedrin's not around, which it hasn't been around now for, you know, 1600 years or so, where do you go for the authority if it's non it's if it's not an not an obligatory war that's let's mention in Torah and it's not a defensive war where you're you're responding to someone attacking you both of which are allowed by the Jewish texts that kind of I don't know what you want to call it, the optional war the discretionary war if we don't have a Sanhedrin where do we go for guidance? Yeah, that's important to emphasize an important in distinction of terminology. It's not optional, meaning, but it's discretionary. Meaning, the Sanhedrin, according to the Rambam, reflects the Beit Din, the court. The obligation of the court is to represent the people. This is because when going to war, frequently executives or kings or presidents can politically gain by going to war since people galvanize around them. Therefore, they could promote war in the promotion of self-interest. Therefore, they alone Mm. are not allowed to declare discretionary war. There's like the a moral hazard, basically. Yep. The Sanhedrin, or the court, is obligated to represent the people. Mm. So for Rabbi Gorin, of which our, um, Rabbi Eisen is an expert on, he says that the Knesset, which is now representative of the people in Israel, functions like the ancient Sanhedrin because it neither gains by going to war, it can restrain the executive, and has the interests of the people primarily at hand. So, so Professor Eisen, so even, let, let, sorry for the interruption, <laughs> Professor Kahn, let, let's, let's bring this forward a little bit into the contemporary, into contemporary reality. It, it sounds yeah. to me, if, if I'm hearing Professor Kimmelman correctly, and I've read, by the way, Professor Kimmelman has a, a really great article that I would uh, encourage listeners to, to look up. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quick and, and dense and informative and, and really easy 
easily accessible read on warfare and Judaism. It's called Warfare and Its Restrictions in Judaism by uh, Professor Reuven Kimmelman. And Professor Eisen, if if bringing this into the to the current day, we when we look at something like what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, and we we'll, you know there there are these biblical uh, prescriptions or restrictions around, around around war, it all seems quite abstract to me. How, how do we apply those rules right now if we're looking at the news this morning as an observant Jew and we're wondering beyond my belief of of whether Ukraine should be able to defend its, uh, it, it should be able to preserve its own sovereignty, and maybe I'm sympathetic, whatever the Russian arguments, whatever it may be. Is there a Jewish prism through which to read this morning's news? Well, I think absolutely. Um, first of all, uh, you know, let me just try to undergird this discussion by saying that there's very little material on war in general in halacha because it evolved when Jews had no state and no army. Right? It evolved in the medieval period, and all of that changed in 1948 when Jews had a state and an army. You know, rabbis then had to develop laws of war, and they did. Uh, but they tended to develop laws of war dealing with the Jewish state. So most of what what we call the halacha of war is concerned with with Israel, but there there are some halachic authorities that deal with non-Jewish wars, and here there's a division of of opinion. Some authorities believe that non-Jewish nations can wage wars that are either defensive or offensive. They can wage defensive and discretionary wars. Mm. Uh, because that's the way the world has always functioned. It's almost like a grudging acceptance to the violence of humanity. You see this position represented by the Nitziv, a great 19th century halachic authority, who simply said, this is how the world is, and there's not much we can do about it. But I would venture to guess that most halachic authorities um, say uh, differently. Uh, most halachic authorities will tell you that really only defensive wars are okay, especially uh, more recent halachic authorities, uh, authorities in the 20th century, authorities in the last 50 years. Um, nowadays, many halachic authorities take the position that non-Jewish nations can go to war, but only to defend themselves. And the offender really is, is, is breaking not just international law, but also in some sense violating uh, Jewish norms. And what is, um, which, and what is yeah. Professor Eisen, a defensive war from a Jewish ethical perspective? Um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that the halachic authorities never define. Um, although, actually, as I think about it, they they do have some discussion about this. Um, well, uh, you have in Deuteronomy, right, the, the kind of, if... I'm not an authority, but that I think Deuteronomy 20 is where you have at least some guidance on like how warfare should be waged and and whether a particular war is justified, right? Yes, but there's actually, interestingly, there's no discussion in Deuteronomy of defensive wars. Mm. And so it's one of those things, it's kind of like the famous statement made by the Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Stewart, you know, who said, "I know, you know, pornography. I don't know. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it." Mm-hmm. I think Halak authorities have simply assumed that a defensive war is when there is an incursion across an internationally recognized boundary, which is basically the same kind of definition you'll find in international law. I don't think that Jews view this in any different way than um, experts in international law do. 
that's that's interesting into itself. You're talking about uh, in the case of halachas. I mean, it goes back well over two thousand years, and in the case of some of the uh, more recent authorities in the Middle Ages, also you know eight hundred thousand years. So you're talking about um, norms of 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 justifying war that seem pretty contemporary, actually. So I mean, if I open the if I you know open my CNN app and I look at the incursions across the Ukrainian uh, borders, and um, that's that. Seems to be clearly Professor Kimmelman, uh, a response to that would be a, a, a defensive and just war, no? Well, first, um, <laughs> I must admit I disagree a little bit with my friend, uh, Professor Eisen. Uh, one specific case is Joshua's war against the land of Israel was clearly not a defensive war. It was an offensive war. Yet the Hamakha requires that Joshua sent overtures of peace and also has limits on wanton destruction. So the application of Jewish ethics uh, to contemporary war, I think, is direct. And I also think that the rise of the state of Israel allows the Jewish mind to get out of its ghetto and to realize that Judaism does not legislate also for the, only for the Jews, but it puts forth norms which participate in the contemporary discussion of just war versus unjust war. I love that, now, Rabbi Kimmel, man. I just got to repeat that for the audience. With the Jewish mind getting out of the ghetto of thinking that you know these rules must only apply to our little corner of the world. That's that's great. I hope we. But can I interject something in here? Sure. Uh, can I interject something, Dove? Uh, I think one thing that you know what, what Professor Kimmel is saying is absolutely correct. You know, Jews have something to contribute to this discussion. But what I also find interesting is that Jewish halachic authorities, you know, across the board, whether they're right-wing rabbis or left-wing rabbis, also tend to endorse international law. And I think that's very significant, because what it means is that Jews are contributing the commute to the international community, but they're also endorsing what the international community believes in. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna need to take our first break. That's a great way to to put a bookend to this first part of the discussion. We're talking about the halacha of war, the Jewish ethics and laws it pertains to war. Obviously, war is on everyone's mind today. Early this morning, Eastern time, mid morning European time, you had Russia's forces um, cross Ukrainian borders. You had missile strikes against various Ukrainian targets. There is a land war again. In between major nations in Europe, we haven't seen this and since 1945. Participate in this discussion about Jewish ethics and law as it pertains to war. You can talk about it in contemporary sense. I'm also going to ask the professors, Professor Eisen and Professor Kimmelman, to teach us how to apply, apply the Jewish prism of, Jew, of, uh, of ethics and law to the Vietnam War, to World War II, and so forth, to give us a little bit of a, of a framework. But you can participate also, live in this discussion, ask a question, give us your commentary, call 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090 to, partic- to participate live. You can mention your name or speak anonymously. And if you're shy about being on the air or prefer to send your question or comment by text, you can do so by writing to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062, either by SMS or WhatsApp. And we'll be right back with Professor Reuven Kimmelman and Professor Robert Eisen talking about Jewish ethics and law as it pertains to 
War. One of our great sponsors here at Equal Footing uh, for almost two years now has been DocuVax. I want to encourage folks to check out DocuVax. You can download the DocuVax app. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X on your iPhone or Android phone. It's a very easy app. You can also go to DocuVax.com, by the way, online on your laptop. And DocuVax provides you an easy way for you to store and validate and organize all of your medical records. It's amazing how disorganized so many of us are when it comes to our medical records. Some listeners know I had surgery. I had a ski accident. I had surgery about a month ago. And I'm in the studio here with this ridiculous uh, brace. I think I got the splint off. But in this process of going to different providers, I realized how disorganized, and I'm a DocuVax user. My own medical records are only because I haven't fully employed the DocuVax system, and that's what I've begun to do, and I encourage you to do it as well. You can download anything from serology tests to preventative screening results uh, to vaccine and immunization records, x-rays, MRIs, etc., and doctors and nurses are on staff 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to validate that information, to give you a, to explain a test result to you, to give a reference so you can get a specialist uh, to care for you without having to wait for your primary care provider to see you. Sometimes that can take weeks or even months these, these days with, you know, given the delays and the, uh, caused by the pandemic. So, you know, your medical records do not belong to your insurance company. They don't even belong to your individual doctor. They sure as heck do not belong to the government. You own them. You should know where they are. You should know what they mean. You should be have, have them accessible at any time and have doctors on staff to be able to analyze those records or explain them to you at any time. You can also use the DocuVac system to present proof of vaccination, COVID vaccination, for example, uh, if you don't want to use a state uh, system and have your data uh, in, in some sort of state database, or you don't perhaps want to show anything that's extraneous. You know, I walked into a restaurant, uh, last night here in, in, in uh, New York and I had to show my vaccine, uh, card on the Excelsior Pass system. I should have used DocuVax to do it. I used, I pulled up Excelsior and it's got my birth date. It's got my, you know, full name. You know, some of these states also have things like your address and your agent. It's just, it's just not relevant to the person that's, that's asking. DocuVax only cost $6.99 per month for the most basic service, up to about $15 per month if you want real full-service application. Compare that to the cost of visiting a doctor. You could use DocuVax for an entire year, and it would cost you less than one doctor's visit. Save a lot of money. Organize your medical records. Go to DocuVax.com or download DocuVax, D-O-C-U-V-A-X, on your smartphone. If you're a small business owner and you want to sponsor a bunch of employees or even clients as a perk, give them the DocuVac subscription, like a health club prescript, uh, subscription, you can call to get bulk discounts. Call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. And if you mention that you heard about DocuVax on equal footing, you will get additional discounts. So take control of your medical file and sign up to DocuVax. I've been caught, but I'm keeping- 
You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman, and I'm joined by two esteemed professors, Professor Reuven Kimmelman and Professor Robert Eisen. So well-spoken, so versed, world-renowned experts on this intersection of Jewish law and ethics and war. It, Professor Eisen, just as a little bit of, uh, if we can, permitted to make a lighthearted comment on, on this heavy subject, that song right before we went to the break was uh, Seven Nations Army by the White Stripes, and um, I, that's actually a biblical reference. Do you want to just quickly fill in the audience uh, with what, what the Seven Nations reference is with respect to uh, Halakhic view of war? Well, I'm assuming it's referring to the Seven Nations, the Seven Canaanite Nations? Yeah. Okay, I, I don't know the song, so I, I have to, you know, I have to verify. Um, but uh, yeah, look, the seven nations, uh, seven Canaanite nations, uh, were the nations that um, were in the land of Israel and had to be conquered and essentially, well, I mean, I, I won't mince my words here, annihilated uh, by the Israelites um, when um, uh, Joshua uh, went into conquer in order to fulfill the covenant. But uh, as Professor Kimmelman points out, Jewish sources have always struggled with the ethics of, of that event. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, very interesting things that you see in Maimonides, uh, which uh, wh- whom uh, Professor Kimmelman quoted, is that the Israelites actually weren't supposed to just go in and, uh, and annihilate everyone. They were supposed to give them terms of peace. Yeah, you always um, have to try la- peace first. You always have to try peace first, yes. By Jewish law, yeah. Yeah, that, right, when that, I, that, that was what you were referring to, Professor Kimmelman, that, that you know, the, the, the conquest of, of Joshua in the, in the Bible was, of course, an offensive war. Yeah, but it should be emphasized that while Professor Eisen's understanding is uh, popular, if you look at the book of Joshua and the Judges, it was never implemented. It constantly says about six different times that they did not conquer this, did not conquer that. Secondly, the Canaanites were put to corvée labor, which means they were not killed, but were subjugated. And even a woman like Rahab, who lived in, who was a, a blue-blooded Canaanite, who lived in Jericho, was allowed to convert to Judaism, according to Chazal. And in fact, they say she married Joshua, and that they are the progenitors of Jeremiah. So therefore, their choice of getting out of the war was there, and the war was not conducted, nor did it kill them. And therefore, mm-hmm. it was a theory... Never implemented. That's why I love the, the color, of- the color commentary. And, and, and actually, the, the Professor Kimmelman, you, you've written in, in Warfare and its restrictions on Judaism, uh, restrictions in Judaism, pardon me, that the Jewish ethics of war focuses really on those two different issues, the legitimation of the war, whether it's justified or not, and the conduct within war. And I, I remember from political science, I studied political science that, and I, and I want to, I want to ask you whether I'm, I'm putting myself out of here if I'm right or not. Um, I remember this as being referred to kind of as jus in bello and jus ad bellum. Uh, and this is, this is not only a Jewish thing, it maybe starts in, in, in Jewish uh, ethics, but it, this is a major topic within, uh, within the philosophy of war for, for thousands of years and very topical. And, and in the papers today, I mean, there's talk about the two different issues we have with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. First of all, is it justified? Most people agree it isn't. And then what might be what might be the misconduct or, God forbid, war crimes that would be committed by by Russia in 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 the Ukraine? So, first of all, for non-Jews listening who, who may have heard of this distinction before, is it the same thing? We're talking about the same thing, Jusin Bello and Jusad Bellum. Is that the same distinction in Judaism between the legitimation of war and the conduct of war? 
Well, yeah, it, the, um, the uh, difference is in um, <clears throat> uh, Juice and Bell talks about proper authority. And we talk about the executive and the representative body. And as far as the conduct of war, the, the, I would say the greatest innovation in Jewish ethics, which is based upon the statement in Deuteronomy, is the immunity of non-combatants. As far as I know, that does not exist in ancient war. war. Through Maimonides, it got into 14th, 15th century uh, humanistic ethics in, 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 um, in Holland and became a part of the Christian conversation. Meaning you can't kill innocent people at war. You have to make maximum effort not to. But not only that, if a person is fleeing and he puts down his weapons and he's unlikely to re-engage you in war, you cannot shoot him in the back, even though he was one time, what, a combatant. Mm -hmm. So if a person does not present a threat to you, either immediately or long-term, you have no right to kill him. And it comes from the rules of road dates. A one who pursues you, it has to be imminent. You can't say, well, he'll kill me in three or four years from now. You have to see him coming at you to kill you. And the only way you can, you can only way you can stop him is by killing him. So you need the criterion of threat and imminence. Imminent means there's no alternative except to kill him. That's similar in warfare. If you can just, if you can, um, remove his enmity, number one, and remove as an enemy, then you have no right to what? Kill him. But if he presents a threat to you, then you can save your life, number one, and save his life by preventing him from being a murderer by killing him. Strange way of thinking, but right. it works that way in Hamba. So a little bit, this is similar principle, but uh, from a slightly different angle. Professor Eisen, I understand that in the Talmud, it states that a person, whether the Jewish or non-Jewish, is permitted to kill a quote-unquote pursuer to save his yeah. or her own life. And this yeah. ruling applies to not only individual, but groups of people. So would that have permitted halachically, or at least in terms of Jewish ethics, uh, Ukraine or NATO to actually have done a, pre- a preventative strike against Russia? Ah, well, now you actually you're, you've, you've now entered new territory, which is the territory of preemptive war. And there's a there is lively discussion in in many of the medieval uh, sources about preemptive war. Generally, the preponderance of opinion. You know, the problem here is that Maimonides, his halachic code does not talk about preemptive war, um, and uh, he's our major source. What later halachic authorities did is that they filled in the gap and they talked about this this issue. Uh, and generally, the preponderance of halachic opinion is that you can wage preemptive war. That if if the other side is is amassing an army and is about to attack, at that to attack, you can in fact initiate a war uh, in order to preempt them from harming you. Okay. That that is a number of very respected halachic authorities. So, so and, professor, uh, so professor Kimmelman, let let's let's build on this. The the Vietnam War, uh, in the the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was positioned to the American people by three successive presidents as being a preventative war against the encroachment of the communist bloc. Uh, it seems like that if it indeed was a preventative strike, that it could have been justified. Can you help us as observant Jews, or people at least interested in this point of view, to apply this prism to the Vietnam War? I think it would be very difficult uh, to legitimate uh, the Vietnam War 
uh, based upon halacha. I'll give you three considerations. <clears throat> Number one, and even American law, you have to have the declaration of war by the Senate. The Tonkin Resolution, from the point of view of North Vietnam, we now know from the memoirs of President Johnson, was false. He misled the Senate. Number two, to conduct the war, one needs popular assent, especially a discretionary war. Vietnam never attacked America. Whether we have a right to attack Vietnam is questionable, but you need popular consent. That's why we have all these exemptions in biblical law, because the people exercise these exemptions, and almost all of them apply to people when they're in combat readiness, then the ability to, to conduct a war would be significantly impaired. Third is clearly in the war, war in Vietnam, we had no respect for non-combatants. We destroyed whole villages. Mm. We subject people to siege. So for the point of view of the conduct of the war, and of course the strangest thing now is Vietnam is one of the best allies America has against Chinese hegemony. The Vietnamese never liked the Chinese. I just talked to a Vietnamese person about two weeks ago, and I said, in your education, who do you hate more, Americans or Chinese? He says, we have no hatred for America at all. They don't threaten us. China does. And we miscalculated thinking that Vietnam was an extension of China and Russian communism. So we miscalculated politically. But it, but it wasn't. By, by Jewish, what I'm understanding is from a, from a Jewish ethical perspective, from a halachic perspective, not a justified war. Before we go to our next break, Professor Eisen, I'm gamifying this a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of, any, uh, of a layup maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, World War II. You yeah. specifically, you got to talk about which combat, you know, which combatant group. U.S. Uh, entering into World War II post the attack on on Pearl Harbor. Uh, I want you to I want you to answer justified by Jewish law uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor, and what if the attack on Pearl Harbor had not occurred? And based on the intelligence we had of what the uh, Hitler regime was was up to, was it justified? So with Pearl Harbor, without Pearl Harbor. Well, with Pearl Harbor, for sure. I mean, based on what Professor Timmelman says, which is correct, you, you know, this was, you know, there was, there was an attack. Uh, they, they, they inflicted, the Japanese inflicted enormous damage on the U.S. Navy, and it really was a declaration of war, and the U.S. was right to enter the war against Japan. Uh, without Pearl Harbor, um, and, well, and also the war in, in Europe, which was not necessarily in America's backyard, there, you know, you're a little bit more on shaky ground, but let me just throw out a consideration here, and that is that, it, that the world, because of the processes of globalization, the world has gotten smaller. What is considered to be an imminent threat has to change somewhat in light of the fact that something that might be happening halfway across the globe may be, in fact, a direct threat. And I think with the Nazi regime, uh, that was really a, a threat to the world order in such, you know, that, that was so that was so extensive um, and so dangerous that I think you could probably you, you you could make the argument that the U.S. should have entered the war because this really was an imminent threat. In the rear in view, in the rear view mirror, certainly yeah. it was uh, at the yeah. time. Yeah. Depends on the intelligence one had and, and the position one had, but very interesting. So just that, so World War II, with or without Pearl Harbor, sounds like we come out on the side that justified by Jewish law. We're talking with yeah. Professor Reuven Kimmelman, Professor Robert Eisen uh, from Brandeis University and George Washington University, uh, respectively, both experts on this topic of Jewish ethics and Jewish law as it pertains to warfare. Uh, thank you for your patience for caller on line two. We'll get to you right after our next break. We'll be right back. 
Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skin care. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skin care surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. The soldier watched as the train came in A sad farewell to the wife and friend Speechless cry, tearful goodbye You stand by and watch him die I can't believe you all right, you're, you're back on Equal Footing, and I'm here with Professor Robert Eisen, who is the author of that last song. And I, I apologize, Professor Eisen, we didn't have a higher quality rendition of it on the program, but a song, uh, very beautiful with that, uh, touches on the topic tonight. And, uh, we exited the last segment with the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, which as many listeners may know, was effectively the theme song, if you will, of the Civil War, sung by Union soldiers um, going into battle, often going into their death. I'm often reminded when I think of, when I hear that song, which is quite beautiful and quite poignant, I think of the concept of of reciting the Shema or singing the Shema when you're going into a situation that that seems like impending death, and there's something something quite extraordinary about about um, about just even thinking about the circumstances of all of those soldiers, some some of those battalions in the Civil War would have you know, 80, 90 percent casualty rates or fatality rates, I should say, in, in um, marching into these firing lines. And with that, I do want to mention I want to talk about Civil War for a sec. Uh, and Professor Kimmelman, this is tough. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not fair to give you this one, but. Talk to us about the you the 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 Civil War in the United States complex affair often thought to be about slavery kind of about slavery uh but but not not originally so one could make the argument was was there a halachic or or jewish ethical justification for the north's response to the south and vice versa to the south's secession from the union boy that's tough that's one i'm sorry okay uh, we will try to um, answer as civilly as possible. Uh, there's two parts of the Civil War test to be noticed. One was the issue of secession, but from 1863, the issue was the liberation of slaves. So now you should ask the question this way. Do we as Jews, in light of our religious tradition, have special ethical sensitivity to the horrors of slavery? Besides the issue of secession. And I would apply, by the way, uh, Professor Eisen's comment on the Second World War about whether we should get in or not. The other consideration is we already knew that the Nazis were murdering Jews, plus uh, others, as they were, especially in Russia. And there's a consideration of lo or altamot adam reyacha, meaning if you see A with a gun attacking B and you see to stop the gun without threatening your own life, 
without threatening your own life, you have an obligation to do so. If it threatens your own life, you have to judge what the possible results would be. So you could argue that the Civil War was not just a political war, it was a moral war, mm-hmm. because in 1833 on, it was a war to liberate the slaves. I would think those are Jewish sensibilities would have a special moral investment in the liberation of slavery if we see that the Jewish experience enhances the ethical sensibility of Jews to similar experiences by non-Jews throughout the world. Okay, so now you're talking about uh, Jews sad bellum, or the, the whether to, to resort to force, being for a moral purpose as well, to, to, to end an, uh, an evil institution of slavery or to end the evil institution of the Third Reich. Let's bring the question, though, of secession, which I think is more complicated, forward to the present moment. There are a couple of breakout regions, uh, breakaway republics, if you will, or areas that have declared independence from Ukraine over the last couple of days in the eastern part of the, the country. That's a secession. That is a removal from a union, from a national union. Union. Some would say that's self-determination. That's how the American Revolution began, secession from King George in, in, in England. Um, Professor Eisen, what does Halacha say about secession uh, from an existing sovereign state? <laughs> I think that's also a pretty tough question. And, uh, you, know, you know, as I said earlier, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of discussion in Halacha about non-Jews uh, fighting wars with each other. So, you know, I I have to tell you, there's no explicit answer to that question. But I think the sense that I get is that, again, we have to return to the issue of the international order and international law. Ultimately, halakha will endorse whatever the international community decides on such matters. So that if if a state, say in eastern Ukraine, is recognized as independent by, say, the United Nations, uh, there's an argument to be made that halakha would also endorse that because it generally goes along with international law. It, it believes that human beings, non-Jews, should govern themselves with, 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 with a law, with an international law that, that makes them decent people and behave decently towards each other. Mm-hmm. So on this, on this topic, I do, I do want to point out that there are a lot of modern Jewish scholars. I'm not, say, I'm not saying either you, Professor Kimmelman, or you, Professor Eisen, represent this school, but there, in my research for this show, in our preparation, we found a number of modern Jewish scholars that hold that biblical texts authorizing any type of offensive war no longer apply, that those were very specific to the Canaanite and that, the wars in that, in that moment, and that Jewish theology clearly instructs Jews to leave vengeance, so to speak, to God. Um, and I just want to read a couple of, of quotes, one from one that many will recognize um, from Isaiah. You know, they, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, no nation shall lift up sword against any other nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The, the Beatles also memorialized that, that those those lines. Um, obviously, in a, you're talking about a utopian reality, but one endorsed by Jewish ethics. Uh, and then the pacifist school in the Talmud uh, of, of Odasara. If you are a man of the sword, you can't claim to be a man of the book. And if you are a man of the book, you will not be a man of the sword. So for those that are listening and think of uh, a spiritual life as also a pacifist life, um, Professor Kilmerman, what do you tell them? Is that is that a valid point of view within Jewish theology? Uh, before I answer that, uh, with regard to I make one comment on secession. It's the ten northern tribes seceded from the Union, which was ruled by that time by the son of Solomon, because of excessive 
taxation policies. <laughs> they were led by Jeroboam, who was appointed by God and the prophet. So according to them, the right of secession means you rule by the consent of the governed. And if the king has oppressive policies, then people could exercise the right of secession. And we have an example. You screwed up my, uh, my chronology here because I was going to ask you about the American Revolution. Now I know the answer. Against <laughs> excessive taxation, that's allowed. I I hear that clear. What about what about the pure pacifist school, Professor Kimmelman? Um, pacifism is a wonderful moral example of the extreme. Something like vegetarianism. I used to belong to a pacifist organization. Uh, strangely enough, it's called the Jew- it's called the Jewish Peace Fellowship and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. In England, the Fellowship of Reconciliation did not allow Jews to join. So the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation in America Mm. asked me to respond to their rejection. And his answer was, the Old Testament quote is so full of violence, how can a Jew be a pacifist? Right. Which I quote all the quotations from what he called the New Testament, which were violent-oriented, and then told them, tell me, is it true that I've been unfair to your sources? Now admit that you've been unfair to my sources. He refused to answer my letter. He wrote to the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and he said, if Professor Kilman is right, there's no reason for Christianity, therefore he must be wrong. <laughs> I will say that in the research for this program, Professor Kimmelman and Professor Eisen, one of the more interesting factoids that I came across was that in, in the history of conscientious objection, which is a policy in the United States where one can get opt out of the draft, conscripted military service, uh, as it pertained to periods like World War II, the Korean War, uh, Vietnam, Vietnam War, because your religion wouldn't allow you to kill, uh, to be in, involved in, in war. The lowest percentage relative to the population of claimants of conscientious objection in the United States of any religious group uh, was the Jewish population. In other words, it's extremely rare for for but Jews so, to have claimed conscientious objection to conscripted military service in the United States. I found that interesting. I'm not sure what it means, but 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 Dove, I, I I would I'd like to interject here and uh, you know give something that's a bit of a counterpoint to Professor Kimmelman, which is that you do have a form of pacifism in the Jewish tradition, and it's represented by the Haredi community. The Haredi community in Israel, especially its most extreme elements, um, do not recognize the state of Israel, do not recognize its wars, and and do not want to serve in its army. And some of that is ideological. Some of that is predicated on the belief that while the Jews are in exile, they really should be ruled by the indigenous population, which means that they prefer a Palestinian state. Now, I know... We're definitely going to do a show on that at some point. That's on the docket. Now, I, I recognize that that's a pretty extreme view, but, you know, some very big uh, scholars of halakha, you know, the, the Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi uh, Yoel Teitelbaum, was a proponent of this, of this view, a leading proponent. And uh, in one of my books, you know, I say that while this isn't my own personal view, you have to see it as part of the, the spectrum of Jewish opinions. Yeah. And then on the other end, let me also say that... And, and, and just, I just want to underline yeah. that for non-Jewish listeners in particular, because most yes. people don't know this. There are significant um, uh, parts or uh, groups within the um, ultra-Orthodox community uh, that do 
till to this day, and and hundred years ago, it's almost uniformly opposed to the creation of the state of Israel because was, you know we hadn't come into upon, upon messianic times. Many non-Jews may not even know that that is the the Zionist movement for. 80 years or something of that order was primarily a, a non-religious movement. It was really led by non-religious, some eight, many atheist Jews, in fact. And it, it took, it took nearly a hundred years for the ultra-Orthodox community, even, to, even for, for, for most of that community to support the existence of the state, existence of the state of Israel. And even today, there are members of the ultra-Orthodox community, many, that are against the existence of the state, existence of the state of Israel, and as you said, don't represent, don't uh, recognize its legitimacy or the legitimacy of its of its uh, of its sovereign uh, acts abroad and acts of war, because it state of Israel shouldn't be around because we're not in messianic times. So it just some some listeners may not be aware of that. Um, yeah. Sorry for the the interruption. We're going to need to take our, our our last break. I think this issue of pacifism is really interesting. We do have. I'm going to read a comment that came through from. A uh, uh, from a listener, and then I promise line two, we're going to take you right after we, we come back. Uh, this listener says that um, that Pirkei Avot, one of our uh, holy texts, uh, reads that the sword comes to the world for the delay of judgment and for the perversion of judgment. We must understand that in Judaism, war is evil. No ifs, ands, or buts. However, at times, it's necessary. Judaism teaches that one has to go to the greatest length to avoid war. So, as one listener's addition to the conversation, sounds like that's consistent with what we're we're hearing. We'll be right back. I, I think the only song that we didn't have time for, we should have put in the program tonight, is uh, uh, War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. All right. Sorry. I just I just caused everyone to tune out. Uh, but, you know, what better segue into talking about one of our great sponsors, Manhattan Medical? I have no, I had no way to connect tonight's topic to what Manhattan Medical does, but I know what Manhattan Medical does is important, so please listen. Erectile dysfunction is a thing. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to put under the rug. It affects as as many as 60% of couples at some point in America, and it often prevents couples from having enjoyable sex. It can interfere psychologically and emotionally in relationships. There are alternatives to those expensive blue pills. Manhattan Medical utilizes a new effective therapy called Gainswave that has taken hold in Europe and Canada and has now recently been introduced to the United States, and it can help you achieve excellent results in resolving erectile dysfunction. It's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects. For most patients, excellent results. Manhattan Medical's Gainswave therapy can help you. It's not just for folks in the Manhattan or New York area. If you're anywhere in the United States, you can get a telehealth consult with Manhattan Medical around its Gaines Wave therapy for erectile dysfunction. Call for free consultation. You heard that correct. Free. Your first consultation, normally a $250 cost. If you call and you mention that you heard about Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave therapy on the Equal Footing radio program, you get a free first visit. Call 888 888- EDQR9. That's 888-EDQR9 or in numbers 888-332-8739. Manhattan Medical's Gainswave Therapy to Treat Erectile Dysfunction. 
800-227-8739. Call now. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on All right, Stan, you are on the air. How did you know it was me? Because it says Stan on my board. <laughs> I know you were a magician. I know you could see. Okay. All right. I'm really let's get interested to as to what you uh, have to uh, say. Well, I'm the expert on this. Stan, show. are you? Are, sorry, I hope I'm not uh, look, betraying. Are, are, are you a veteran? Time. I know. Are you we a veteran have much though? Time if here. I remember correctly. What? Are you a veteran? Yes, I am. That's, that's what right. I was going to. I am the expert here on war. Because I fought in the Vietnam War, and these professors are out of touch with reality, to be honest with you. They're nice guys, got nothing against them. Unless they fought in the war, okay? Unless they fought in the war, then I listen and keep my mouth shut. But the major point is I don't know of any leader in this country who asked or looked at biblical passages before they went into a war. None. Wilson never did, World War One. You can bet Roosevelt. Didn't Eisenhower? No. Yeah, but Maybe. Stan, I is. But a, wait a minute, hold it. Hang on one I don't second. have much but time I here. I as a Jew, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make you. I'm going to let you make your point. But I, as a Jew, I'm not making those decisions. But I do want to know when I read the paper: is there any Jew? Is there any Hishkafa around this? Is there any? Guidance? No, absolutely not. Do you think? Do you think Vladimir Putin cares about that? No, that's. Oh, no, why, why, why were you even talking about it? I mean, you deal in the world you live. The key point is for the Jew. What and it, we're talking Israel, not talking to Jew, Israel. And and, what, and, and for oh, let me finish. Please, you're Jewish. Running out of no, time I, here. What do, <laughs> no? What does what does the Prime Minister of Israel, the Jew? Yeah. He's not going to ask the uh, head rabbi of Israel. Should we go? To the, what does he think uh, of what's going? No, he and then he's and then he's a fool. He got to ask what's Putin doing, what's Russia doing, what's their relationship to me, and what's the United States relationship to me? And religion has nothing to do with it. It has to do with who's my friend and who's my enemy. Yeah, you know, there's always good and evil. We know that. But anybody who would go to the rabbi and say, you know, I'm in a quagmire here. What does the Bible say? Uh, you know, I think George Bush number two was that way to some extent. And Vice President Pence might have been had he been president. I hear Thank your God. point. No, I hear your point. Thanks, Dan. So, so st- the point that, that, as always, I appreciate your 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 input. The, I think the point Stan is making, and there have been scholars uh, in the in the Jewish tradition who have uh, made this these these points. Uh, Michael J. Broyd, for example, um, you know, is forget about all this. In in, in contemporary reality, it's just about real politic. And, uh, you know, so is that is actually because the one point I disagree with Stan is I do think as someone, um, at least for me, I can't speak for Stan and other listeners who may share that point of view. But as someone who tries to be rooted in, in Jewish faith, I am interested in what Jewish faith tells me about these these wars. But is there a belief? Is there a strain of logic in Jewish ethics and halacha, Professor Eisen, that would allow you to have Stan's point of view? Forget everything else. It's about real politic. Well, yeah. I mean, in some sense, you 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 do. I mean, the people the people who the, pe- the the legitimately constituted authorities who wage war are recognized by halacha as the ones who should wage war, and they're the ones who make decisions. Halacha also, modern halacha authorities also uh, say that one must consult the military leaders to to know whether a war is feasible, how it should be conducted. So you can't make this. Separation. This, this separate. You shouldn't make the separation between uh, what is secular and what is religious. Here, let me also state 
that the premise of what uh, Stan said isn't entirely correct, because the just war tradition and the tradition of international law that deals with war grew out of Christianity, which in turn grew out of the Bible. That's right. So when you say, well, no, it's only, you know, when we make decisions about this thing, it's oh, it should only about, be about uh, secular considerations. There's no such thing. Western civilization is steeped in Christianity, and that Christianity yeah. and the biblical foundation of Christianity affects the way Westerners look at war. And for Stan's, <laughs> for Stan's education, to your point, uh, Professor Eisen, the, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, has these codes enshrined, like the purity of arms concept that's a biblical concept around proportionality, not uh, the immunity of combatants, as Professor Kimmelman talked about, and much of that is is enshrined as in the Geneva Convention as well. So we're going to be out of time. I want to ask you guys to to give us just, it's literally going to have to be 30 seconds to a minute of whether, at the end of the day, the Putin's invasion of Ukraine is halakhic. I'm going to ask you to do devil's advocacy. So Kimmel, uh, Professor Kimmelman, could you tell us the reason why definitively it is against halacha and Jewish ethics for Putin to have invaded Ukraine. And then we'll finish with the devil's advocacy with you, Professor Eisen. It is clearly as legitimate as Hitler taking Austria and going to the rest of Germanic lands. In There's other no words, basis. unjustified, no casus belli. Right. One okay. last point. Though. The war in Vietnam and the Israeli incursion into Lebanon in 1982, both has significant, we were impaired by the lack of moral support at home. And therefore, the information of the Bible and the Talmud is informing people's moral position on the wars mm-hmm. ends up playing a significant role in the ability of a country to conduct a war. Yeah. Professor Eisen, literally 30 seconds. Wrap us up with the devil's advocacy. How is it possible that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is, in fact, a just war by Jewish ethics? I just can't do that. I, I, I can't. <laughs> Okay. I mean, you know, I think, I think, I think I would agree with Professor Kimmelman, uh, what Professor Kimmelman would say. I would also emphasize that again, Jewish law, modern halachic authorities on the right and the left wing and everybody in the center generally thinks that everyone needs to follow international law, even the state of Israel. Got it. Professor Reuven Kimmelman, Professor Robert Eisen, from Brandeis University and George Washington University, respectively, professors of Judaica, uh, Jewish ethics, experts on war and Jewish uh, law. Thank you both for joining us on Equal Footing. We'll have you both back, I hope, on separate issues in the future. Thank you for having Thank you. us. Thank you. A pleasure. Listening to the wind of change. Soldiers passing by, listening to